so from a from a linen closet <laughs> here we go <laughs> <laughs> Hi and welcome to episode 42 of the Zero Dev Chat podcast and tonight we're talking about Hyperion and the CSA and online training courses. Uh, on the panel we've got Kevin McAlvin. Hey Kevin. Hey Kenneth, how's it going? Good thanks, good thanks. I'm joined by Riaz. How's it going Riaz? Hi, it's done. Good thanks. You're joining us from locally or overseas tonight? Uh, I'm actually in Durban uh, today. Uh, but heading out to Johannesburg tomorrow and then back to the UK on Thursday. Nice. It's perfect timing that we actually caught a local guy on local soil that seems to be living in the UK. So, Riaz, tell us a bit about yourself. Give us the short backstory about who you are, what you do, where you came from. Sure. So, uh, my name is Riaz Muller. Uh, I was born in Peter Maritzburg, but uh, I, was born, uh, I was raised and did most of my schooling in Durban. And I'm, I'm 23 years old. I started studying at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in 2010 uh, when I studied computer science. Uh, and that was when I first saw kind of the educational problems we have in South Africa. And that's the kind of genesis of why I decided what I do today. So in 2010, I was lucky to go on the UK's exchange program uh, in my third semester to the United Kingdom. So... Really, when you go overseas, you really understand the context of your country a lot better because you have another reference point to compare to. And the main thing I was, in South Africa, we have a lot of the infrastructure, yet we don't have the educational outcomes that they have in places like the UK. And there's a lot of factors because of that. But when I returned to South Africa after that exchange program in 2011, I was very moved by the extent to which students in South Africa tried but struggled at all their studies, especially in the field of computer science. So it's very interesting, but the degree with the highest failure rate in South Africa over all universities nationally is computer science. About 88% of all entering students fail that degree. Uh, and that's quite astounding. It's not, a, it's not something that's very widely known. You know, you'd expect it to be medicine or mathematics or engineering, but indeed it is computer science. And so in 2011, I was very interested in returning to the UK, mainly because I wanted to study artificial intelligence. And in September 2011, I transferred to the University of Edinburgh. Uh, so I was at Edinburgh for about three years. I completed my undergrad in computer science and AI. Uh, and I then went on to Cambridge, where I completed a master's in computer science. And I'm now actually finishing up a second master's at Cambridge in technology policy at the school. Uh, so technically, I am still a full-time student, but that's not really been the case for the last year uh, because I've been quite busy running a startup called Hyperion. I must say, I didn't know so many students didn't make it through ComSci. I'm curious if you think there's a specific reason for that. I mean, from my side, I remember when going to study and, and people dropping out because they they started it for the money because that's this glamorous lifestyle that IT is supposed to give you. And then they just bail out to, I guess, whatever their real passion was. I don't know what your thinking is about that. Well, it's interesting because the degree with the highest dropout rate in the UK is 
concerned. So uh, maybe we're not so bad after all. But their dropout rate is 11%, so not as drastic. So internationally, the reason why computer science is a hard field to study is, I think, for two major factors. The first factor is that this is a field that is very closely linked to problem-solving skills. And in fact, there's been a new drive in the UK and the US, also shared by initiatives like Raspberry Pi, the British Computer Society, and even Google, about this concept of computational thinking. And at the end of the day, computational thinking is programming is all about. You have to be able to think algorithmically, abstractly, and it's very hard to surface learn, to maybe just fake uh, you know, an answer. Your code is either right or it's very, very wrong. And you can never really copy or really, you know, fake that kind of problem solving skill. So that's one factor that makes the subject hard to learn internationally. But in the developing world, of which I put South Africa in for purposes of this conversation, there's also the other issue where to learn computer science and programming, you need a lot of things that we kind of lack. Uh, one of them is access to, to, to good tutors and good support. Now, there's a lack of computer science educators in the UK, even in the US. But in places like Africa, this is even more severe. We, of course, have picked up on languages a little bit slower. And a lot of our talent in software development goes into industry rather than going into academia or education. So you will find there is a scarcity of tutors. Another aspect is there is a scarcity of internet access. And there's nothing worse than trying to learn to code if you come up against some kind of debug message uh, with an IDE that you can't simply Google and look at Stack Overflow and solve. And in many parts of the developing world, the students just don't have access to the type of internet connections to do this, uh, let alone to be able to take online courses by people like Udacity where they download videos to kind of learn coding. So when you pair these two problems together, you'll find that the challenges of learning programming and computer science in the developing world are greatly amplified. But so are the rewards. Because if you can learn to code, it's one of the most lucrative careers in South Africa right now. And my guess is you build Typerian uh, on top of solving these challenges for the kids. Well, I saw the Hyperion in 2012 during a holiday, summer holiday, when I came back to South Africa. And to be honest, I didn't think about all these things back then. I didn't, I didn't really know as much about the space, obviously, as I do now. But I had a feeling that, obviously, this is an important field. Uh, I, at the time, I never knew it was the degree of the highest dropout rates. But I did see that at UKZN, for example, it was obvious about 80% of students were dropping out of the first semester of a computer science degree. People were being told to learn how to code in Java, uh, they had no prior experience, uh, and it was tough. And so I started Hyperion really to help those students at UKZN. And the kind of idea was to to more actually teach people Python and to teach people things that were not being taught in South Africa. Uh, so specifically, I was studying artificial intelligence in Edinburgh, and there was quite a lot of courses on machine learning and natural language processing that are not taught here in South Africa. So I developed a Python course that kind of taught people how to build a simple spam filter or do a simple machine learning algorithm. But just by virtue of the fact that I didn't have the resources to record videos, I ended up building a course that could be taken with limited internet access, even without knowing it, it wasn't my priority at the time. And uh, I went back to UKZN and I spoke at a couple of lectures. Uh, I promoted the course to students. 
uh, and the concept was they would take the course free and they would be linked to me as their tutor. And I was surprised because within two weeks, you know, we got over 100 people signing up and I was forced to select top performers from the courses to join an online community of volunteers helping one another learn programming on the platform. Uh, and that has, that has continued for the last uh, four years. Yeah, that's interesting. So these, these guys are um, using the platform to learn how to do programming. And so you're talking about it being peer assessed, is that right? Learning from, from each other or is it assessed by each other? It's mainly assessed by each other. So basically that online community continues to do with so many volunteers that, that uh, a lot of the course content for new courses were created by the community. So I only really created that initial Python course, but we now have 14 courses. And uh, if somebody comes onto the platform to take a course, uh, they are paired with one of these tutors. And the tutor will basically mark their work that's submitted on the course and give them kind of written feedback. And that's, that's how it's always worked. And so we've solved the problem of access to tutors. We've solved the problem of internet as, and we've solved for a scalable solution train these people obviously online is very scalable the problem we haven't really solved is really the computational thinking skills how do you impart that in a course is there a way you can but that's something we're still working on today yeah a lot of that has to do with just practice and you know taking on a problem and working your way through it and thinking your way through it and i don't think that uh, there's just a one-size-fits-all solution to that if you find it that'll be awesome but it, it takes a lot of practice thinking through problems to actually build that skill i think you can emphasize it when you develop courses if you come from the mindset of having a computer science background rather than being an expert or advocate of specific languages today for example i was just in a discussion with uh, some of the syllabus advisors for ieb schools and basically you know there's this whole debate in south africa should they teach java or delphi in schools and at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter so much. As long as you can yeah. teach a course that uh, allows people to go beyond and abstract what they're learning, the things you want to teach, you want to think, teach the essence of computation. That is what computer science is. That is what programming is. Programming, programming languages were only built to realize computation in the physical machines that created after World War II. And at its heart, any programming language is Turing complete. It can carry out the simple mechanisms of computation, which we know as for loops, if statements. And whether you use Delphi, whether you use Java, whether we use Python, if you can understand that, that's the most important thing. Yeah, I find that debate of your Java to be rather moot in South Africa, at least. It, a lot of it has to come down to finding the skills to actually teach the language rather than the actual language itself. Sure. But let me go back to, uh, you know, what I was saying with uh, our online courses. So over the last three years, we managed to grow to, uh, sorry, in the first three years of starting out, we managed to grow to every single tertiary institution in South Africa. Uh, so we had students from all the different institutions across the country. And that was with a marketing budget of zero rand. And uh, that was really the one nice. of volunteers. Uh, remember, I was doing all of this while studying in the UK. And that's a great thing about online communities. Uh, they can actually get a lot done if you, if you believe in them and if you can find volunteers that are passionate about what they do. And we could do that because people would only come to us 
if they were passionate about programming and computer science. So it was never very hard to find volunteers uh, who fit that model. And that's why we were able to grow. It was only about a year ago that we came across the Moffa Social Enterprise, where you actually sell services to fund free services for another audience. And basically, our model now is to sell courses to people who are not students, who are not educators, who are not from low-income backgrounds, and use that money to help support the online volunteer community and to support the quality of the free courses we can offer. So that's what we've been doing over the last year, and it's allowed us to establish a core team of employees that actually support the online volunteer community. It's allowed us to improve our websites, our courses, and you know, really look at expanding not just to Southern Africa, but to East Africa, West Africa, and even South Asia. So uh, this has been a great transformation because the demand for these skills is across the board. It's in schools, it's educators, it's in academia, it's at universities, it's in industry. And so we're very happy now that we're able to find a model where we essentially steal from the rich and give to the poor. Modern day Robin Hood. Yeah, I'm not sure if we're as efficient as the same, but we can always try. Now it's it's good that you brought that up. It, I think it wasn't immediately clear to me just looking at the website that some people could get the courses for free. And, and I think that's great. So I wanted to ask these students then that do these courses for free, is that over and above the existing CompSci work that they get from their tertiary institution? Yeah, so we have a quite a big mix now. We have a very large mix because the way we market the free courses, we don't specifically market them to people studying computer science degrees. Though a lot of people studying computer science degrees do end up taking the free courses, which is quite odd because you would think <laughs> they are studying a computer science degree. Why would they need to take a programming course? We have a very large mix now of people from humanities backgrounds. In fact, the top students on the free courses right now is a linguistics students, but also educators, you know, school teachers from Western Cape, KZN, uh, school kids, you know, people who are unemployed, people who, you know, work in the mines. Uh, it's very diverse, the people in the free courses. We think that's very good. Uh, so we don't want to specifically offer this to people to help them to pass their degrees. At the end of the day, only about 5,000 students a year graduate with computer science degrees. Uh, we can target a much bigger pool than that. And how many people do you have currently in, in your courses that are like participating and passing? Yeah, at the moment, we have about 8,000 students that are participating in courses. Uh, I'd say that about 40% of them are actually from South Africa. Uh, there's quite a large part who are from Zimbabwe, from uh, Namibia, from you know other Southern African countries. And we've recently trialed an expansion to Nigeria. Uh, however, we are a bit concerned because we may get more students than we can handle. So we're working on improving the model and website. Like you say, it's not immediately clear the social enterprise we have and how we split up these two groups like do you qualify for a free course and why should you buy a course if other people get it for free so those are the things we're working on now to make sure when we do scale to western east africa uh we're prepared to answer those questions and the service we offer makes sense so i'm kind of curious about the core team and the behind the scenes stuff with hyperion i mean i guess Listeners can go check out the website for some of the courses you guys have, and it's like Java and Python courses and a bunch of other stuff. But I'm like curious at the core, like how does this thing run? What kind of like support groups do you guys have that you can tap into to just make sure you can scale out the way you need to? 
Sure. Well, the core team is obviously increasingly important, and we're uh, we're hiring quite a few people right now. Uh, we're actively looking for you know talents across the board to help us grow. But at the same time, we're also very interested in growing the volunteer community. And to that end, we actually spun out a separate entity called the Computer Science Association of South Africa. Uh, and this was ready to host the volunteers that we were getting. The issue we have is we have a lot of volunteers from many different backgrounds. So we have professional software developers, uh, we have uh, teachers, we have students. And, you know, those, even if they're all volunteers, it's kind of hard to get them all in the same room or doing the same thing because they all are at very different stages in their lives and careers. Um, and so we created the Computer Science Association of South Africa to try house some of these volunteers, but also give them autonomy to grow the volunteer community. Because there's a lot of projects that can be done that don't have to be just the online courses we do. For example, we partnered with Google last year to build a teacher's community of volunteers. And this is really to try to solve the problem of computer science education in schools. There is a project in the UK called Computing at School. It was started by two teachers in Cambridge. And the idea they had was every month, we'd like to have a meetup of any teachers in our area who are interested in teaching computing in their school. And when they say computing, they mean programming or computer science. And this initiative in four years spread to 17,000 teachers in the UK, hosting and running 170 different meetups across the UK. And this has been hailed as a massive success. And this organization, Computing at School, or CAS, was, was kind of acquired by the British Computer Society, the BCS, which is the professional body for computer scientists. And so last year, we were approached by Google, who selected us to adapt Computing at School to South Africa. And that program, project has gone very well so far. We're engaging with the Western Cape government. We're engaging with teachers in Gauteng, Eastern Cape, you know, uh, KZN, Western Cape, almost every province now. And not just IT teachers, but CAT teachers, math teachers, science teachers, English teachers. Because computing and computer science is becoming more and more ubiquitous. And if we need to develop these skills in the country, we can't just focus on a pool of, say, 210 IT teachers. That's how few they are in the country right now. So the importance of volunteers and the importance of community of practices in computer science education is extremely critical. I mean, that's what you guys do, right? You have a community of developers. So the power of developer communities is quite uh, impressive. Another, so in the Computer Science Association, we've been lucky to connect with the Python user groups in South Africa, some of which, which now uh, operates under the CSA. And we are very happy to have any more professional students, educators join this community. Uh, to run new initiatives, volunteer-based initiatives. It's not just about our online courses because this is a problem that I think needs multiple solutions for and uh, wider advocacy and understanding on all levels about why it's important and what we can do together as a community. Yeah, absolutely. I think community is one of the key uh, areas that we need to focus on with education. One of the first things i always say to anyone who's trying to get involved in software development whether it's whether they're just learning or if they want to take it up as a profession or advance, advance in their career is to just get involved with the software dev community and try and learn from others attend presentations and build that network up uh, so if CSA is driving that I, I think that's a great initiative 
So if, if someone wants to get involved with CSA or find out more about that, uh, volunteer to uh, get involved, where would they look? Uh, CSASA.org.za. That's a website where it's still the process of being constructed, but we are processing people who apply to join uh, the community. And right now it is a Slack community that also plugs into physical meetups that happen in Cape Town, Joburg, Urban, and soon with PE. Uh, those are Python user groups, but also other type of meetups of educators. And on top of that, there is also two online meetings that happen every week. Uh, so quite a lot of meetings and activities going on, but a lot of them do have the focus on education. But in the future, we will see a shift towards more wider things like, you know, maybe promoting all open source technologies in South Africa, or even actually conducting studies on what are the real issues with computer science. Uh, what are the statistics? You know, what are the problems? But uh, right now, there's quite a strong focus on education uh, in the community. And how's the uptake been at the schools level uh, from that? That you've only, well, that there are only something like 210 IT teachers. Is that in the whole country that you're mentioning? Yeah. So in the South Africa, there's only about 210 public school IT teachers, and only about 1.4% of all wow. students in matric take IT. So that's pretty scary. And uh, for IEB private schools, I think there's only about 40, 40 teachers. So there's only about 250 teachers who teach programming in South Africa. So this whole job and you'd also need to contextualize it because, you know, that's a very tiny amount of teachers. But uh, that's tiny. That's nothing. Yeah, I'm dumbfounded. It doesn't. It sounds unreal. I mean, I took IT school, and I did, but I didn't realize that the the concentration of teachers for that is just so small. Yeah, and you can imagine the problem if so few students are learning in school and only 12% are getting degrees in computer science, then where do people actually go to? How many people actually even get a chance to learn software development? And that's why industry struggles so much in South Africa. You know, people want to hire Django developers who have five years of experience, or they want developers who experience and skills that are barely used in the country. And that's a huge issue, right? If you have that kind of demand from industry, why doesn't the education match that? Uh, so that's really the gap that we've been filling. So at that level, um, people who, can get, who get involved with CSA uh, will then be able to get involved with schools or with, with communities to try and, and bridge that gap. Exactly. So one of our, one of our earliest kind of volunteers in CSA, he works for Canonical, Mark Shuttleworth's company, the company that makes Ubuntu. He's their only South African employee. And of course, a canonical employee knows the value of community better than anybody else, probably. And uh, through the CSA, he's actually managed to set up the first Python user group in Durban, uh, which teachers now attend, educators from schools, to learn Python and expose Python and Raspberry Pi and associated kind of technologies to their students. So this kind of industry teacher crossover through things like Python user groups is extremely valuable because when we talk to educators, and even the South African Department of Education has told us educators want more exposure to industry. They and their students want to know what are the skills that are in demand in industry now? What do people do in industry? What is software development? And this is pretty much the only mechanism for that to happen. I think it's a fantastic mechanism. A few years ago, I was privileged enough to be on an advisory board for a tertiary institution for their IT faculty. And it, it, I was one of the guys supposed to represent small business. 
And then they send people from Microsoft and Oracle, IBM there as well. Not actual big companies running systems. You would expect somebody from the mines or the banks being there telling the lecturers, you know, what their students would do. But in the meantime, it's like industry sales experts, like completely blinding the lecturers with spotlights. And then the the curriculum gets adjusted accordingly to this. Like, you know, it's, it's almost like the world that only produces this type of Java engineer. So therefore, the jobs will be created and the software will get sold. And it was quite bizarre where this open meetup, like on a monthly or bi-weekly or weekly basis, really sounds like it can do the trick to influence the teachers in the right way. Yeah, because you need you need people who understand the local context and who are not acting, you know, completely on the behalf of an organization that most people don't, you know, will probably not end up interacting with or being a part of. So, I mean, look, this is the issue Google has, right? So we essentially act... We are running a project for Google, basically, and we interface in the local context. And that's very important because, you know, most of the Google people driving this project are based in California and London. And it's very hard to get the South African context. Even the sphere, we call it IT in South Africa. That is the name, IT. And in the UK, they'll call it computing. And even terminology or how, you know, what is it that teachers want? This Delphi versus Java is top of the mind. But of course, you know, Google doesn't know all about that. Um, so we play a very important role in trying to bring things down into the local because, you know, I'm talking about computer science now, but, mm. you know, it's hard to go to schools and talk about computer science. It's, it's, it's actually hard to get people to start talking about Delphi versus Java. Uh, but we'll get there one day, I think. Hopefully. Then I'm, I'm kind of curious about how you see the, the, the future of your efforts and i guess the industry kind of all because we've had we think code on the show before and i think today was kind of their first day of class we've had sezonki rising on the show it's just like a very small focused also community driven thing it's really like it's amazing to see how many people are just out there doing this and wanting to make our country a better place? But I kind of want to hear like how you see that going forward and, and kind of your competition and stuff and what gets you out of bed, I guess. Sure. So, I mean, uh, we love what Think Code is doing and similar initiatives. But in the space of online education, you can really do something that has never been done before. So if you take a step back and you think about what MOOCs are, massive open online uh, courses. What is the key word there? The key word there is probably open. What does it mean to be open? It means that you give education to anybody. You give access to education to anybody and that they would not otherwise be able to get. You give them an alternative form of education. You, they don't have to go to university. They don't have to pay to take a long degree. They don't have to spend three years. And there are a lot of books out there, right? There's Coursera, edX, Code Academy, Udacity, but nobody has pulled a MOOC for the developing world, let alone a MOOC for computer science education in the developing world. And that's really what we're doing. Uh, we've started in South Africa, but the number of people who we can assist is much, much larger than just South Africa. And I think for us, Hyperion as a whole, our organization will be focusing on that. And at the same time, we will also be, be supporting the CSA so that we get depth in South Africa to the level where we can influence policy around some of these issues of 
language or teacher training uh, in a similar way that computing at school has been able to done in the UK. So for example, computing at school now heads up all teacher training for computing teachers in the UK for the Department for Education of the UK government. And so it is very possible through an initiative like the CSA to get that kind of traction and that kind of change. So we envision change through our projects and the work of others as a, as a, at a level that brings depth in South Africa. But for Hyperion, we also want that change to scale across other parts of the developing world. That makes a, a lot of sense. I'm kind of curious, kind of just as like a last thing, like maybe just to pick apart that what sets this MOOC apart from the ones that are not built for, you know, the developed world, like, or for the developed world, what, what makes one special for the developing world? What's the kind of challenges you guys are facing and have to work through to make this thing an even bigger success? Sure. We offer online courses, yet 60% of our students don't even own an internet connection and they're taking a course with us. So how is that possible? And we can offer a course to somebody who doesn't have an internet connection. It's due to some clever technology we use in our platform. So we use low kind of bandwidth content, but we also have a method that allows people to work offline. And that's using some technology we've extracted from kind of services like Dropbox. That's a work in progress still. So we're still working on it. It's quite a tricky problem to solve. But uh, just the first thing you can do is just offer courses without videos. And you'll get a lot of the way there. Uh, you, you don't want a course to be two gigabytes. The course content is two gigabytes. That's not very useful. You need a course that's 20 megabytes. And it's very possible to do it. Sure, maybe people will enjoy watching videos more. But uh, rather give them the content that they can definitely access. The kind of offline access model is one way I think we can improve a lot. And that's what we're currently raising funding to be able to improve that underlying technology. But of course, but, but already, I think the fact that 60% of students don't have an internet connection is a great step we've been able to make. It really brings new meaning, I think, to, to an online education. I must say, it, it, in hindsight, it almost sounds so obvious. But you can perfectly well deliver a course that doesn't require two gigs and somebody who's only got a prepaid SIM card and they want to carry on with their work and they can't access a university lab over the weekend, can't expect them to spend you know, that many hundreds of rands, a whole month's taxi fare just to download a video and be stuck without it. Exactly. And I mean, online course platforms that exist, a lot of them come from the US and the UK. And, you know, why would they build a solution when the primary target market is generally the US population? Uh, we'll have to see an online course platform come from the developing world. And South Africa, I think, one of the great places where it could be built. So yeah, we, we're very much looking to, to, to kind of be the pioneers in this area. Just know it's quite inspiring to see what you guys are doing, uh, especially in this market. Thank you so much. I have to run off now. I'm so sorry. But I'd encourage any of you listeners, if any of this is of interest, uh, please don't hesitate to check out csasa.org.za, even uh, hyperiondev.com, and feel free to get in touch with us. I'll have links to all of that in the show notes for everybody to follow up easily and quickly. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time, guys. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Charles. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for joining us. And uh, I'd say sorry we're a bit cramped, but, uh, but hopefully we can follow up again in a few months to hear how you guys are doing and how it's grown and, and sharing the success stories. Definitely. Be happy to talk again in the future. 
Have a great night. Cheers. Cheers.